Welcome to Once Upon an Upset Interviews. On today's episode, I interviewed Kelsey, who goes by the Occupational Therapist online, where she writes about everything from space-themed activities to sensory processing. She shares insights from a school-based professional perspective about IEPs, child development, and working with kids with disabilities, as well as a more personal perspective as a mom herself, and all focused on the importance of learning through play. In this episode, we talk about sensory processing and some of what kids who have sensory processing challenges go through, how we as parents can support them, and how we can also support ourselves while we're having sensory challenges of our own. I want to apologize in advance for some technical glitches in this interview, but in my opinion, they are minor and don't detract from this really interesting conversation I had with Kelsey, who is such a brilliant, insightful, and generous human being. I hope you'll get as much from the conversation as I did. So it's so wonderful to have you here, Kelsey. I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. So I'm I'm thinking that um, from my podcast, listeners are going to be parents who have kids who may have sensory processing issues, um, mm-hmm. and some parents who may notice a lot of um, conflicts with their kids and not quite sure what's going on. So I was wondering if just to start out our conversation, if you could mm-hmm. share just a brief um, some brief thoughts or observations or knowledge about what sensory processing is? That's a great question. And I think the problem here is going to be whether or not I can be brief. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I have a tendency to get uh, rambly. So tell me if I'm doing that. But um, sensory processing, uh, people might have heard sensory used as a buzzword for lots of things these days. Um And um, it'll just be thrown around like, oh, we're doing sensory or, oh, my kid has difficulty with sensory or things like that. And uh, and and doesn't necessarily get filled into the full um, descriptor of what it is that people mean by that. So when we talk about sensory processing at its most uh, easiest level, it's probably something that you learned about at some point in grade school. When they, uh, when they sat you down and said, there are these five senses and it's uh, sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch. Um, well, there's more than five senses, but that's a pretty good um, basic overview. And sensory processing is just the way in which um, people perceive the world around them through those five senses and through other senses as well. Like, for example, your sense of balance. Um, and... Um, so when people talk about a child having sensory processing difficulties or, um, sensory processing disorganization or one of a different number of wording that then we're talking about, um, some way in which the input coming into the, the child's body and brain, uh, through their body, um, something about it is too much for the child to handle or something about it is not enough for the child to notice or in some way the message that the child and this can be adults too I'm saying child because that's the population I work with um 
something about the way that they are receiving the message uh, is is getting like garbled or magnified or minimized in a way that it doesn't to um, maybe the same age peers or maybe your typical person or your average person or however you would want to word that. Um, that's kind of the, uh, that's, <laughs> how is that for a, for an overview? That's wonderful. That's really wonderful. And it brings me to my personal experience, which I'm excited to get your input on because others may have a similar experience where my child was in kindergarten and he mm -hmm. was at, in his particular school. They all had to eat lunch at the same table in silence in kindergarten. Oh my God. And oh. it was Waldorf school, so they, they were just big into this creating space for silence. Well, my son was physically um, incapable of tolerating the sound of chewing. Oh, man. Yeah, I would be right there with him. <laughs> I <was there. laughs> and I found it really interesting because from the perspective of the teacher, she looked through the lens of of empathy that maybe mm -hmm. it would be a good idea of sitting that child next to the loud chewer so that my son could see his essence and and get along with him better and learn that way and it was so interesting when i started learning about sensory processing how another lens that wound up being more productive was that he physically couldn't sit next to it it wasn't about right empathy. so no I, <laughs> I was um, wondering if you if you hear if you experience stories like that where in an educational environment kids who are having difficulty with sensory processing aren't gotten through that lens. I definitely see that all the time. I don't. I feel like um, the empathy take would be a new one to me if I had a teacher <laughs> telling me that. Um, what I hear more of the time is. Um, that the child just has bad behavior or is attention seeking or whatever uh, one of a number of ways that adults minimize the lived experience of children and um, and I'm actually uh, presenting a, a, a little seminar feels like a big word but um, I'm doing a little training for teachers at the school that I work at in uh, a little over a week that is called is it sensory or is it behavior um, because they specifically asked me to speak on how people would know if, if, um, behavior, which is another euphemism people use to just mean like misbehavior or behavior uh -huh. I don't like, yes. inconvenient behavior, um, meaning the, the question meaning, you know, well, is there a legitimate reason for this inconvenient behavior or am I really just right to be mad at it? And the even further implication being, <laughs> please just affirm that I'm right and that the, the kid is wrong or else give me an easy fix to fix the kid like give him a fidget or whatever yes um, and I don't think that I'm going to give the answer that they're maybe necessarily hoping for yes yes um, because my real answer is why does it even matter unless it's uh unless you're asking the question in good faith to try to solve a problem i.e is this a sensory problem because can I help you with a sensory problem? But if you're asking it to try to um, figure out how much credit you should give a child, then the answer that I'm going to give you is all of the credit. Please trust what they are telling you is in their body. Yeah. Um, so that's the more common angle that I butt up against it from. But yes, all the time. Um, 
And I, I'm about to go off on a little tangent here. So feel free to just holler at me if I, if you want me to stop. Um, but I was actually just thinking, uh, the other day about how, um, oh, about the way that, um, we don't, like I was saying about trusting, uh, kids to report their lived experience. And part of it is that kids, um, like a five-year-old doesn't even necessarily have the words to describe their lived experience or, um, they might not be super duper accurate words or possibly aren't even like, um, maybe chewing is a real obvious one, but if there was a five-year-old who, um, really couldn't tune out the sound of the air conditioner in their room, but they didn't even know that the air conditioner was what was making that noise. Mm -hmm. And they didn't even know that the air conditioner could be turned on and off because maybe they're at school in the summer. And so it's on all the time and they, maybe don't like it. So I say they don't even have the language to tell you, but I even mean they may not even know in their own brain why they are just feeling irritable as soon as they walk through the door. And it's because there's like this whiny noise in the background. That's like driving their brain crazy. Yes. Um, and so, um, you know, part of what I do in OT is trying to help teach kids to be able to self-advocate. Part of what I do in OT is trying to help kids be able to like drill down in their own self, to find the thing that they need to be able to self-advocate about. Part of it is trying to help the adults in the child's life be able to facilitate that because they're the adults and they, you know, they should be able to do that. And so it, it's just like a real multifaceted thing that's not as easy as, um, you know, oh, okay, well, don't sit by chewing noises. I mean, like that <laughs> one, that one's fairly clear, clear cut. I don't mean easy in the sense that it's not meaningful or not uh you know like a problem to that needs to be addressed I just mean that if somebody handed me that one I could fix it real fast and some of yeah. them I can't yes some of them I can't fix real fast but you're making such powerful insights that are so interesting to me um it sounds like that there needs to be a shift with the grown-ups to go away from thinking about behavior to becoming kind of environmental detectives to figure out what might be in the environment or in the way from this child's being able to connect with what's going on in their world so that they could thrive and and express themselves is that is that accurate yeah it definitely can be and um you know i don't mean that um in the absence of everything else that this should be the first place that people are looking or anything like that but almost it's it's um I want people not to necessarily move away from behavior or ignore behavior, but to become um, better interpreters of behavior uh. because um, behavior is early self-advocacy. Mm -hmm. Like a child, um, if you think of, of trying to um, spoon feed a baby purees, I know some people don't do purees, but if you, if you picture that as an example and you think of trying to put the spoon in their mouth and the baby turns their head away, well, one thing you could do in response to that would be to like get angry about it and shove the spoon in their mouth anyway because you're an adult and you can probably put a spoon in a baby's mouth if you really really want to I think most people wouldn't do that unless they were having a really bad day and not very in tune <laughs> with what their baby was telling them so I'm not saying that I think most people would do that right um 
what what is difficult about that situation is that the baby could be communicating one of like 80 different things it could be like this particular food is gross it could be like I still have food from the last bite in my mouth. Please give me a second. It could be like, oh, the dog just ran over there and did something and I'm looking at it. And and so um, the adult has to kind of, um, the adult does not expect the baby to talk or articulate their concerns. And so <laughs> they, they're used to being a detective in that instance and figuring out the baby just because again behavior isn't only a euphemism for misbehavior it means literally anything that you do is behavior and so yeah. the adult is used to being like you did an action i have to interpret the action oh i see the dog running by now i realize that's probably what you were looking at um but then as soon as a child develops the ability to talk and especially kids who are precocious or like seem like they have a big vocabulary or like they can say whole sentences, but even kids who are just completely typical um, in terms of language development, especially if they're first born, because the have been around a lot of kids before, um, and maybe they're just suddenly like, oh my gosh, this three-year-old or four-year-old or six or seven-year-old can like say all of these words. So clearly they can probably totally tell me what's wrong. And um, even when they're flooded with emotion and even when they're in a stressful situation, they should be able to verbally articulate exactly what it is that's bothering them even if they don't know necessarily what it is. And if they do anything with their body that I don't like while they're trying to do that, then I'm going to hone in on that and I'm going to think that they're, like, misbehaving. And obviously, from everything about me and my tone of voice, I think that that is missing the point. Mm -hmm. Where um, I think that their behavior usually says a lot more than their words actually do. And um, I have a child with... Um, some pretty significant speech delays and I think that in a way it has um, it has given me a crash course on uh, both reading behavior and on like not taking the words literally even slightly like it cracks me up when when people um, get real bogged down in exactly the words that a child is saying or exactly the way that they express something because I'm so used to taking something that is like really 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 far away from the literal meaning of the words that you mean and and understanding what my child means by it because he uses a lot of things to his own his own language and his own jargon so I think I have a I have a little bit of a gift in that way yeah that's really fascinating and and such an interesting perspective to think of language as still something that needs some interpreting with with a lot of awareness of Mm -hmm. the child and the environment. That's really interesting. So in your practice, um, I'm just curious if you could give like a, an example of, of maybe if I don't even know if there is a common situation where, where a child comes to you because they're having some sensory difficulties. Um, how, what is, what are some of the things that you do with the child? I know you mentioned um, that some things are easy for you to solve and some things mm-hmm. aren't, but it, I thought it might be useful if it's even possible, it might be too big of a question, but to take something and, and, explain some of the exercises or some of the play I don't even know the right language yeah. no that's for, yeah for what what you can provide so one <laughs> one caveat is that um 
I, I, I think that what I am doing is great occupational therapy, but I also know that what I'm doing is pretty different from how a lot of people do occupational therapy. So I wouldn't want somebody to hear this and think, um, well, for one, think, oh, my, my kid's OT at their school definitely does this. Or also, my kid's OT at their school doesn't do this, and so what are they doing? Because there's a lot of ways that occupational therapy can look, and I am um, a little bit radical um, in some of the things that I try to do. And I try, like this year, I've been trying to um, create demands-free sessions, uh, which is not something that a lot of OTs, or at least not a lot of OTs in the spheres that I work in, um, try to do, but I try to give the kids basically complete autonomy over the session. And I do a lot more front loading of the setup so that nothing that they do in the room can be like wrong or like the wrong choice. Mm. Um, everything is working on their goals. So anyway, I say all that as a caveat because, um, OT can look a lot of different ways and it can still like be good and be like, um, you know, um, helpful and, and all of that. I don't think that the only way that I do things is the only way to do things. Um, but I get, so this is where we get out of the, uh, we get a little more complex than the five senses because the most common, um, thing that I end up kind of treating with kids is in the realm of interoception, which is a word for your inner body sense. And I'll expound on that in a second. And proprioception, which is a word for your like deep body sense or like your sense of your body in space a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if that makes sense. Yes. And so, um, interoception is your inner body sense. And that can be even further split down into, um, kind of your biological and your emotional inner body senses. So like your biological ones would be your sense of needing to go to the bathroom and like being aware of that, or your sense of needing to eat and being hungry. Um, whereas your emotional ones would be like your sense of being able to interpret that the fluttery feeling in your stomach is because you are anxious or nervous and your sense of, um, being able to interpret that the, uh, like the way that your face is getting hot is because you are angry and, and things like that. Um, I tend to either see, um, for sensory stuff, I tend to either have little kids like preschool age and with them, it is mostly me, their teachers and their adults and trying to, to work with the adults much more so than the, than the children. When they get to sometimes kinder, but especially first, second, third, then the, the locus of it shifts and I start working more directly with the kids um, to work on a lot of times identifying those inner body senses, um, a lot of times um, identifying um, proprioception comes into this because those are the kids who are bouncing off the walls mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, they need to move and they need their body to be moving and they need deep pressure to be able to regulate. And so um, I do a lot of play with them in regards to um, describing their energy level, describing their focus level, noticing how different activities like swinging on a swing or jumping on a crash pad or jumping on a trampoline affect those activity levels. Um, and so they get to a point where they can kind of, the, the, the ideal being that they would get to a point like me as an adult where I can say, 
oh my gosh, I have been sitting here writing this report for an hour and I need to just stand up and walk around the room and get some blood flow back into my body before I can sit and think anymore because my brain is fuzz at this point and um, I am tired of sitting here and also I'm thirsty so I'm going to go refill my water bottle. Like I did a check of myself and noticed all of those things. I didn't just sit there in front of my computer and just zone out real hard because I was exhausted. And I knew that doing all those things would help me reset enough to be able to continue working on my work. That is so interesting. Just sit there and zone out real hard because they don't have they don't have the awareness uh, to 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 go through their body and check all of those signs. They may not even be putting together I'm bored or I'm zoning out or I'm losing focus. Like it's just happening to them. They're just kind of being crashed on by the wave. Um, and so the other thing is that a lot of people think that I'm going to fix the way that their kid is, or I'm going to change the sensory processing method that they have. And I'm really not. I am, I have uh, like clinically significant level of sensitivity to noise and, and a few other things. I got my hands on a profile for adults and did it. Went to work at a certain workplace. Um, and I still have those. I'm still an adult and I still have those, but I know how to manage them. And so I'm, I'm doing a lot of teaching kids in their bodies because <laughs> their body That's is going to stay their body. That is such powerful stuff because I'm in my mind, I'm thinking back to my, my son um, back in a, a school situation. And I can imagine that that can be a really, really frustrating and even scary situation for a kid who doesn't have that self-management and who is right. taking it like the wave. And if, and if he's feeling like he needs to move and isn't able to, and then along with that, isn't aware that he's thirsty and along with that isn't sure why his face is hot because someone just maybe bothered him mm -hmm. i mean all that stuff on top of each other i would imagine that's pretty common for sensory kids to have have a whole stream of stuff bombarding them and then what yes yeah and then after enough time after enough time with the adults in their life telling them every time that they explode, you're, you know, you're making red choices. You're doing this because you're bad. You are making bad decisions. Then they believe it about themselves. Yes. Yes. And so it makes things much more um, burdensome because then there's the disapproval and the shame element on top of things that they're not even sure how to, what's even going right. on in the first place. Yeah. And anyone, anyone who's ever, yelled at their kid which is also me I'm not saying that I'm like some wonderful saint um anyone who has ever yelled at their kid knows that they were not like choosing to lose it right then in that moment you know like they weren't like they weren't thinking with their thinking brain they weren't they weren't like you know what would be great for my relationship with my child right now is if I had just screamed at them I think that's <laughs> the best decision for all of us um <laughs> No, they were, you were reacting, you know, you were reacting with, with, uh, with your Im impulsive brain and, and you're an adult <laughs> and, and like that, that doesn't excuse it. That doesn't, um, you know, demonize it. It just, it like, it is what it is. And you, and, and a adults have the responsibility and the 
capacity to like access resources to like you know to choose over time to be better and to practice to be better but we like expect so much maturity out of children when they aren't even being taught it or maybe modeled it and 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 we we treat them like when they lose it whether that means at a person or throwing something or hitting someone or flipping something or whatever we we treat it like it's all about you know it was all about their choices it was it was a good choice or a bad choice and they're making a bad choice or i maybe this is just kind of the area that i'm in but this is language that i hear a lot in the schools Absolutely. especially like green and red choices because yeah. now they don't the same thing the kids know it's saying the same thing they know that green is yeah. good and red is bad and yeah, it's it's so interesting from when I was um, going back to what you said about about the adults. Like I know for, for myself, I grew up in an environment where it was behavior, there was good behavior and there was bad behavior. And you really mm-hmm. had muscle through. Nobody really talked about, well, let's talk about all this stuff you're in, having an input and let's talk about how to manage it so that you can have some self-leadership and advocate for yourself and, and have your needs met. There was never any of that conversation. There was just, if you muscle through and behave in a certain way, then you get rewarded. And if you don't, you get punished and you get something mm-hmm. taken away. So I feel like for me with my son, it's been such a reparenting myself because then I get to see like the stuff you're talking about with the adult. Like when I hear him misbehaving, I go, I'm sure there's some part of me that, that says, well, he's not supposed to be like that. He's not going to be right in life if he's like that. So I have to teach him to stifle that and and look the part of a well-behaved person. And then I realize, well, that, that does, there's a huge cost to that with someone's vitality and well-being and self-expression if they are pretending to be well-behaved but they have issues or or a lot of feelings that they haven't investigated so it's just so interesting to to hear about about the adults also having sensory stuff that we haven't even addressed or or had compassion oh my gosh yes the adults (laughs) if i could if i could wave my hand and 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 heal things for the generation who already have to be adults and who have to choose to to make this better for the next one you know like I would do it I'm right there in the same boat with you that I still have voices from my that pop up in my mind when I'm parenting or when I'm working and I did um I'm getting better at just like acknowledging their sources and not you know not that they are the objective truth of the universe but that they they also have a source you know even if i can't necessarily remember exactly where it came from yeah um and it just it people wonder what fills the gap when you take away like reward and punishment like oh but then kids will just run wild and do whatever they want and um what fills the gap is relationship Mm. whether it's whether it's parenting or whether it's um, occupational therapy or teaching, I would say, or whether you're an adult and you're living your own life, like the the thing that you're living for isn't isn't um, just like, I mean, like I guess there are things that adults reward themselves with throughout the day, but even that is almost a relationship with yourself in terms of self care. But um, 
that is like a philosophical branch that I haven't explored before. So I don't know that I want to do it out loud for the first time on the podcast. But at least least the kids, like I, every time I get a new kid on my caseload and especially when I first introduce them to this like demands free session uh, where I am not taking them into a room and sitting them down and telling them exactly what they have to do, but rather taking them into a room and it has like six things set up around the room and some of them stay the same every week and some of them change. Um, and they can do what they are interested in doing and I will follow their interest and we will build on it together. Um, it usually takes a little while because they don't know what to do with that. <laughs> uh, having been in the school system up until that point. Um, and then it like explodes with relationship benefits and I'm not I'm not trying and magical because like um I mean I have kids on my um caseload who are um have a diagnosis of selective mutism and like they don't speak to me just we do it this way but like we I I have kids who you know who have like severe anxiety stuff and I'm not saying that this like solves it I am saying that the the level of like relationship support that I get in terms of being able to make incremental progress every week is better to me than if I sat them down and we worked on a worksheet and then I had data that was like more evenly spread for me to like make it look good on paper that's and Usually with some, with some extra work and some data gathering, then I can gather enough to make sure that it at least makes sense on paper. <laughs> yeah. So would you say that um, based on what I'm learning from you, listening to you, is that relationship has a, a higher value than performance in some ways? Like when there is that sense of relationship, then natural flow may occur in terms of um, um like functioning or or um, skill sets that when when the relationship is there there's more of an incentive to feel comfortable to learn or practice skills yes and a good example of this is from the other the kind of the other side of occupational therapy is um, fine motor skills and that's often like handwriting and um and uh I would rather that a child feel safe to write one sentence about something that they love spontaneously than that I make them do worksheets every week and, you know, hope writing gets incrementally better in that way. And I had this with a student last week and it was like, it actually was one of those like magical, the angels are singing moments (laughs) because he just, um, he spontaneously, I suggest to him every week hey, let's write a sentence about what we did um, after we do like fine motor games and stuff like that. And, um, and he has always done it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like uh, demand it of him if he was resistant, but he's not. So um, he's always done it. He's always interested in it. And then I, we like read them back later. So he knows that his words are like valuable to me. Like, oh, what did we do last time? Oh, look, we can like all these pages and you're the one who chronicled them. That's super cool. Um, Last week, he spontaneously wrote a different sentence that end of session sentence. He just wanted to write it, and so he did. And I was like, 
like I was I was wow. glowing it was it was delightful that's really quite beautiful. I mean, it just, to me, it illustrates so much of what you're saying. And yes, I know there's not always magical moments, but but that when there is relationship over um, ex- expectations, it changes. It sounds like it just changes the whole dynamic. I, my son had started occupational therapy, a very different occupational therapist, where there were those demands. And for my son, it just felt for him like someone, here we go again, someone's asking me to do something that I don't want to do. And and he yeah, it's another teacher. It. Yeah. yeah. So the relationship, it's like, what's more, maybe it's like a different kind of thinking about priorities, like what are our skill sets as important as relationship or it's so different than the way I was raised skills skills it is yes and I am I am starting to drill down and try to try to find and it is making me have faith that this isn't just an OT thing because I try to carry it over into my parenting as well not exactly the same because it's not the same to be a parent as to work as a professional and I see my kids for more than 30 minutes once a week mm-hmm. um but um but I I I follow some um speech language pathologists on Facebook who are um branching out into this kind of um same way of session some of whom are uh like specifically working with uh kids who are like have speech difficulties and then some of whom who are working with kids who are learning um, how to use um, AAC or like augmentative alternative communication, which could be like a communication board or like a communication tablet. Um, I, I feel like this could be a classroom. I feel like it would look pretty different than the traditional classroom. And so I know that like a public school teacher can't just like up and decide to change everything because they have to answer to administration and stuff like that. But I feel like there are still principles of like the principle of, hey, prioritize the relationship first because kids want to do well when they're in a relationship with the adult in their life is like a principle that carries everywhere. It's um, it it really is magical. Like when I've seen my my son with a teacher and the teacher um, connects first. Yeah asks questions my son transforms into someone who's shining and someone who's interested in sharing it might not happen right away but when someone when he goes and sits down and he's shown what his expectations are he can't wait for the room it sounds so simple but there's something there's something really like intrinsic about relationship before skills i guess it's like it's hard and it's it's tiring as adults like because you just want to be like just because like it this is more more clear example from parenting sometimes you want to be like just brush your teeth just brush your teeth yes and this could be a two-minute thing it doesn't have to be a 15-minute thing yes like let me just brush your teeth for you or you just brush them for my kids are two and four so me it's still no, I just uh, had that conversation with my 10-year-old last <laughs> night. <laughs> right. And, or, you know, anything, whatever, not just brush your teeth, but, like, just just put your clothes in the laundry. Just do, like, I'm already yes. doing so much for you. Just do the thing. I'm asking you to come one inch, and I'm coming a mile. Just do the thing. Um, 
and and I get that. I get that. I really, really do that. It's exhausting, and it whether in a professional setting or at home, it it is. It's tiring, and it also I haven't ever had a time where I like summoned up the energy to like be playful about bedtime, even though I was just like, just go to bed and let me do something by myself for five minutes. Um, <laughs> I haven't ever had a time where I regretted it. I have also, like being honest, I've had times where I like, I fe- I truly feel like I just can't. And sometimes that just happens and you just had to be, you know, no nonsense about it and go along with it. But every time that I have managed to make myself be playful, and make myself value the relationship over the getting the kids offloaded so that I can go watch a show. I haven't ever gone downstairs finally at the end of it and been like, gee, I wish I hadn't done that, you know? Yes, that's so true. If I can do it with my logical brain, uh, if I can use my logic brain to talk my impulsive brain into actually behaving like an adult and a fun adult who loves play, then uh, it always goes better. Yeah, but it's just like it reminds me of what you were talking about before with the adult sensory thing. Like when I when I'm in that moment and my son who who does have sensory um avoid he he does not like the sensory experience of brushing his teeth. Oh it's yeah. Really physically horrible for him. And then my mind, I immediately get I don't know what name you call this sensory experience, but this catastrophizing where my oh, son yeah. is like, oh my God, I can see the drill at the dentist and there's going to be right. consequences and, and I start escalating. And in in those moments, like it's, if I, like you said, if I am able to catch myself and if I'm able to do some management and understanding where that comes from and I can be playful, it's amazing. Like you said, the difference. Sometimes I'm tired and it's just so difficult to like, find that 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 door to get into that that managed yeah. person <laughs> it is it's hard and it's it's a muscle that you're flexing and it so just like any muscle it gets better as you exercise it like oh yes people people will get frustrated that they don't you know they're not they don't just like learn about respectful parenting or conscious or mindful or uh, positive or gentle or any one of a zillion other names um you know, they don't just learn about it and then like a switch flips and uh, their kid is great and they are great and everything is great. Like it's a it's a you know, it's it takes time and it takes effort and it takes um, practicing it. And um, and all of that is relevant. And I mean, I I'm I do better now than I did four years ago. I also have a different kid than I did four years ago. So it's a little hard to have an like exact metric to yes. <laughs> to compare it to. But um but I feel like less stressed overall and more like I feel like I have a base of, of support on what it is that I'm, what it is that I'm doing. And also I have begun to see, even with kids who are four and two, um, I've still begun to see like the benefits of them having this relationship with me that I didn't necessarily have with my parents and that, um, I know kids who don't have relationships like that with their parents that I can just like see this self-autonomy and self-expression and freedom and joy that like I want for all kids you know yes yes that's really beautiful and what you said also reminded me of a lot of parents um when I read posts in different Facebook groups and I certainly have this when a sensory 
when a kid who's having difficulties managing sensory processing of their environment goes and sees part of the family who's still back into the observing the environment to make sure everyone is well behaved and kind mm-hmm. of like a, an eye for criticism. Uh, oh, yeah. I, yeah. And, and those moments are very challenging, I feel like, for parents in those moments in particular to have that, to juggle the empathy for our children and try to um, keep an eye out for our parents to not criticize our children when we're trying to develop relationships. Those moments can happen a lot and they're very stressful um, to try to get the, oh my the grandparents on board. My, <laughs> my parents... Uh, at Christmas 2019, my parents literally sat us down after we put our kid to bed and we're like, so do you plan to discipline your children ever? And we were like, cool, <laughs> great. This is a great conversation to be having. And it was after probably the worst day that we'd ever had um, with my, with my, uh, with my child who's autistic. Um, and we didn't know they weren't, they didn't know for sure at the time we like had suspicions um and they had like skipped their nap we had been up earlier than usual um then we had been out all morning this was all pre-covid yeah yeah yeah. i said 2019 Mm -hmm. um we had been out all morning and then we had gone straight to a restaurant and sat at the restaurant for a long time uh because the food like got delayed or something like that and we were seated next to an elevator in the restaurant and the elevator um, didn't work or like had an issue with it. And so like the doors kept opening and closing and the button light kept staying on. <laughs> and my child like loved elevators oh, and missed their nap, not eaten in hours. Everything is weird. Been woken up too early, been out all day, sitting next to their favorite thing in the world and it keeps opening and shutting and we won't let them go in it. And it's like they lost their whole entire mind uh-huh. uh, and my husband ended up taking my child and going outside uh with them and just like walking around and settling down and what my parents took from that was like we, we will just let this child do whatever and I but the child was two years old at this it's not even out of the realm of just a two-year-old like that's like yeah. and 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 what my parents took from that was, you'll just let them do whatever they want. And I was like, what do you even wish that we would have done? Like, like, yes. because my, my own parents' parenting style would be like, you know, like scare us or, or, or hurt us or make us, you know, make us fearful enough of, of whatever to be able to put up with whatever. And, yes. um, and, and I was like, I, I basically had a, a, um far less polished and far more impromptu and uh (laughs) far more rambly and like way worse articulated version of this exact conversation with yeah away from it having learned anything other than oh no our daughter has gone off the deep end um but i think uh, that there are so many people who can identify with the restaurant Sensory children in restaurants plus an elevator. Oh my lord! I right there like are so many people who've been there, myself included. The restaurant with grandparents is like a recipe for. It was like little toddler torture. It was the worst. <laughs> like what were we doing to this poor baby? Yeah. So that's such an interesting 
um, series of, uh, of context lenses all melded <laughs> together. And so I'm just curious, like for people who are listening, who are going through stuff, I mean, my son's 10 and he still doesn't, he has difficulty sitting still at a restaurant. It's just not his yeah. thing. Husband and I are like, why do we need to torture the child and have him have that skill right now if that's right? But a lot of people have to, you know, go to restaurants and and meet with extended family members. And I'm wondering if there's any advice or words where where if parents could give their parents um, like this little section of our interview, like what what (laughs) way to reframe for these for these grandparents or these extended family members to help them understand um, that they their concern doesn't perhaps their concern yeah. some flexibility. Well, for one thing, I feel like there's a little bit of a uh, like um, there's a little bit of a catch twenty two where it's like. Oh, if you let your kid use a tablet at a restaurant, then you're one of these modern parents who just lets the screen babysit their child. But also, if your kid makes any noise at a restaurant, then you're the worst ever. So, like, it's like you got to decide ahead of time. You know, you got to set everybody up for success. What's the most important to you right now? If what's the most important to you is we all have a family meal, then having a family meal is probably going to happen more easily, like at your house or you get takeout and go to a picnic table. Um, if what's more important to you is we sit in this particular restaurant that Mima really likes and um, everybody bees quiet, then maybe you need to bring a tablet. Like whatever you need to do is okay. You just got to like prioritize your priorities is what I'm saying. Um, and just because you do something once doesn't mean you have to do it for all time and always. I am the self-proclaimed queen of flexibility and hey, if it works today, then let's do it today. And if it doesn't, then we'll do something else tomorrow. Um okay. Because I feel like, like you mentioned, catastrophizing, uh, and I, and I, I, I feel like parents have a real quick tendency to go, oh my gosh, my kid is having a rough, rough time this time. If I extend this grace to them in this way, or this one caveat to them in this way, then I'm going to have to do that forever until they're 18. And it's like, no, maybe you just have to do it today. Like, it's okay. Um, and then, I mean, the other thing on, like, the real advice I would give parents is that you're probably, you're probably better off that, uh, that grandmas also do well when they can, (laughs) just like kids do well when they can, grandmas do well when they can. Um, if grandma's not open to learning about if they're not interested, if they're not, um, then you, no matter what you lecture or what evidence you put in front of them or what you say, it's not going to do anything and they're still going to judge you. Like it, and so you have to decide whether the relationship is more important than the judging and you have to mitigate the situation in other ways like I've already described. Yeah. And and when you (laughs) Sorry, sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say, like, that doesn't mean that it's, like, hopeless because if you do have a family member who is actually willing to listen to you, not just a conversation about how you're doing a bad job at parenting, um, I mean, I feel like the, uh, the simplest and yet the most, uh, profound frame shift that you possibly can is literally just to ask, um, a person, any person, a grandparent, a teacher, a parent, any person, 
how would you treat this child right now if this child was another adult? Hmm. Yes. If an yeah. adult, if if you wanted to go to 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 uh to lunch with a friends group and the friends were all adults, and one of them said, "Let's go to this place. I love this place." And another one of them said, "I'm really sorry. I cannot handle that place because of whatever reason they gave. I'm allergic to an ingredient there." The sound is too loud for me to be able to hear you talking. The smell of it is really nauseating to me. I had a bad date there and I don't want to go back. Like, um, it, whatever reason they gave. you, Most adults defer to another adult. Mm-hmm. That's but most adults um, don't consider children's opinions to be worth really listening to or deferring to and I don't mean that you have to give in to everything that they say all the time or whatever I just mean that you can like picture them like an adult and picture how you would react to this because then if there was a strong you know other reason or whatever then you'd have a conversation about it and you would collaborate until you found an equally amenable solution but most adults with most kids just kind of are like well my opinion trumps yours so suck it up yeah, and, and that goes back to what you were talking about before about the adults and the adult sensory. And then somehow I always forget this, that when, I, when I'm with my father and he's feeling critical or, or sounding critical about my son's behavior, to put that in context with what he was allowed to do. Yeah, exactly. He was a kid. And maybe that can help find a little empathy, like, wow, he was never allowed to misbehave once or he would be right. judged. So in some way, maybe these parents are, are old-fashioned in the sense where they're trying to preserve this sense of, of, well, don't go into the, the, the area of red where you're going to be punished and you're, they're catastrophizing. You're going to ruin the future. They're going to, you know, never get a job and all that. Like they're, they're coming from, yeah, go ahead. I think at a very neurological level, um, if someone let, like take a certain behavior, um, like let's say like like screaming or yelling or or anything like that if someone every time that they that they ever screamed or that they ever yelled was punished for it and and the the punishment didn't help them with whatever it was that was causing them to scream or yell it just um it overpowered their body so strongly that they were able to force themselves into fight or flight or freeze in order to internalize the feelings enough to not scream or yell, even though the problem still existed and hadn't been solved in any way. Mm-hmm. Body, after years and years of that, their body has learned, look, screaming or yelling equals push yourself into fight, flight or freeze. But a lot of people, when they become an adult, um, they, they, especially if they were, if they were flight or freeze, a lot of people start feeling like it ought to be their turn to get fight as an adult. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that is what makes, um, you know, kids who are yelled at grow up and yell. Like, be, n- n- there's a lot of complicated reasons to it, but I feel like one of the reasons to it is that your your brain is aware that a scary loud yelly situation is going on and the neurological pathway that your brain has for scary loud yelly situations is 
fight it or run away from it. And now you are the adult, so you cannot run away from it. So what you better do is fight it. And that means fight this kid who's right here in front of you. And it takes time and it takes effort and it takes practice and it takes self-awareness to be able to start breaking that um, neurological pathway and building a new one. And every time that an adult who was yelled at when they were a kid doesn't yell at their kid, they are breaking that pathway a little bit harder and creating a new one. And so even if that's like do something silly or like do something to snap yourself out of it, those things break that like they break the neurological pathway, like physically speaking, the neurons in your brain that are firing to each other. It is disconnecting the pathway that they have created over years of having that experience. And it's a bold and powerful and strong and brave thing to do every single time that someone manages to do it. And I think that parents who are trying real, real hard maybe don't hear that often enough. And so I want to say that, too, because I don't want this all to just be like, yeah, rah, rah, you're the adult, be the adult, blah, blah, blah. That's not what I'm saying. I, I have that little kid inside of me, too, and I understand it. That's and I, somebody should have helped them solve their problem instead of yelling at them. And it's not fair to have to grow up and be the one who has to do it for both generations, for you yourself and for your kid, and maybe for your grown-up um, or having to extend grace to them too, if they're not extending it to you, it's not fair to have to do it in all directions. It's not, and you're doing it anyway, and that's super amazing. Wow, that's so beautiful. It really acknowledges parents, a, a lot of us in this middle generation, you know, recover. Yeah. From that and also wanting to create a whole different set of connections for our kids really powerful stuff but you know I, I just I'm thinking about about the residuals of, of the parents generations and this meeting expectations and being rewarded do you have any and you you talked about how you can envision a different kind of classroom but in your opinion, do you feel like like kids are evolving to want more connection-based learning? And do you feel like, is there any evidence from, from, from your work and the kids that you see that the problems sometimes come from classroom environments that are these old-fashioned environments that are, are ex expectation-oriented instead of relation-oriented? Is that... Is that a big part of what's going on? I don't know that kids are any different than they always have been, but I do think that we're almost at an intermediate stage of some parents trying to be more connective and some teachers knowing how to do it and some. And so I feel like that leads to kids who may like seem worse or like they have higher expectations but it's just because they like have any at all because there's like an era in which you could time travel to and um you know it's like uh children should entirely be seen and not heard and like just you know it, no one with learning difficulties is identified in any way you're just the you know you're just the stupid kid or you're just you just don't go to school or whatever and um and there's not even a push for everybody to be publicly educated and um like you you get you get in life and it just is no you know and so if you go back to that era i don't think that like children were fundamentally different 
But I think that the environment that they were being raised in was so quick to mold them into, look, you better just shut up and take what you get, that there wouldn't have been a lot of um, room for exploring what else things could look like. And now we're like, it's like we're half of the way there or we're a little of the way there. And so I think that 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 makes it more of a more of a challenge because you might have kids who are expecting to be able to to build a relationship with you you might have kids who have you might be the first person in their life who has ever seemed like they were interested in what they had to say or cares about them and so and then you have to kind of be able to teach to the balance and um and still be able to manage expectations and all of that with you know with kids coming from all kinds of different backgrounds Mm -hmm. that makes a lot of sense yeah. Well, we're we're heading towards an an hour here. Yeah. And before we end, this has been so impo- such interesting and powerful stuff. I'm so grateful for all you shared. Is there any last thing that that you feel kind of a a a, a desire to to share with with parents who, you know, who who are trying to create environments for their kids? to thrive in and, and, and feel good inside. Do you have any last words you'd like to share? I feel like I really summed it up, uh, when, uh, just that, you know, that it, 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 there, there's an inability to this kind of work, whether professionally or personally, um, where it feels like you're just doing the same thing every day of your life. And you're just picking up the same toys off the floor and you just have to feed everybody and they all have to eat protein and some kind of a vegetable. And, um, and it, and then the next day, same thing. And then the next day, it's just the same thing. And, um, you know, maybe like, I wish that for one day we would not have a meltdown about such and such, or, you know, I wish that we could go one day without everybody screaming at each other. And, um, it, it is important. The everyday thing is important. And being there to support your kids' feelings instead of trying to solve them for them is important. And giving them space and vocabulary to talk about those things is important. And hearing them and hearing their opinion and and talking to them like a person is important. And every single bit of it, a relationship is built a zillion little moments and not on any one thing that you could do or any one day that you could have or any one OT session that I can pull off. None of that means nearly as much as the first three seconds of seeing them after they get home from school and they see your face light up and they know that you mean it. Or you just like dropping a little comment about how much you love them at like a random little time. And those are the things that become the threads that just like make up the whole of the the whole entire weaving that they see when they when they look back on their relationship with you and and I just this is a marathon of the little things and yet all of the little things are they are meaningful and I feel like sometimes it's real real easy to get lost in feeling like it's just an endless onslaught and I just would want parents to know that it it means something it really does. That's very beautiful. Thank you so much, Kelsey. And and for listeners, Kelsey has a really wonderful Facebook page that I'll link um, in the text of this interview so that you can 
find her um, posts and so many really inspiring thoughts and ideas <laughs> and your come hear me ramble in written form yeah it's wonderful so i'm just so grateful for your time and this has been so refreshing um hearing your perspective and your ideas and the love you have for for children parents and and having everyone um connected together so thank you so much kelsey yes absolutely thank you so much for having me yeah i hope you have a good rest of your day thank you <laughs> bye 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 you've been listening to once upon an upset interviews for once upon an upset podcast for kids and parents please visit onceuponanupset.com where you'll find stories and conversations to help make sense of difficult times. This episode was written and produced by me, Jessica Laurel Kane, and the music was made by Jerome Rawson at Fresh Made Music. See you next time.